Good morning, everyone. So let's open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. So we'll be reading from Exodus chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 10. But after, be ready. It's at the end of your Bible. Okay. It's going to be at Revelations 12, uh, 1 to 5. Okay. Uh, let's just bow our heads before we read the, the Word of God. Dear Only Father, we just want to thank you so much for this new day that you've created for us, Father. We just pray that um, as we read your Word, your Holy Word, Lord, that could pierce our hearts and change radically uh, our, our lifestyle and the way we live, Lord. Uh, I, f- I pray, Father, to this morning, Lord, that you, you speak to us to our hearts, Lord, that we would be open to receive from you. And this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. The birth of Moses. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that the that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Now let's turn to Revelations 12. Is everyone there? You guys are fast, that's good. The woman and the dragon. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. On his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched, was snatched up to God and to his throne. May the Lord add his blessing to his word. Good morning, everyone. Just a reminder that this evening we have our missions night happening. We hope to see you there. Uh, I know I am planning to be here uh, with bells on around 630. Uh, It'll be a great night, and we invite you to come out and share that time with us. Let's uh, pray uh, as we open the family book once again. 
Father in heaven, uh, we praise you and thank you for the fact that not only have you sent Jesus Christ to be our Savior and our Lord, to die for us, to die in our place as our substitute, not only have you given us the Holy Spirit as your children uh, to lead us on the path of righteousness for your name's sake, uh, to comfort us, to uh, steer us when we need steering, not only these things, Lord, but you have given us your revealed written word, the Bible, which we believe as your people is authoritative, uh, that it is inspired, that it is inerrant, that it is clear, uh, that it is sufficient. Uh, We thank you for this gift that we have in our native tongue, and we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would attend it now as we preach the word and hear the word, and may we be doers of the word and not hearers only as we leave this place later today. We pray these things in the powerful, mighty name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. I want to introduce you to the parents of Moses. According to Exodus 6.20 and Numbers 26.59, the name of Moses' father was Amram, and the name of Moses' mother was Joshebed. Now imagine with me, if you would, some of the tension that Moses' parents must have been experiencing in the, say, eighth or ninth month of Joshebed's pregnancy. This couple lived there in Egypt under the cloud of slavery to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh had recently uttered this decree at the close of Exodus chapter 1, This decree that said that every Hebrew baby boy who was born was to be thrown into the Nile River to drown and die. And Joshebed was expecting, long before the appearance of ultrasound machines, But yet, on the other hand, at the same time, Amram and Joshebed also had access to a very different decree from a very different king. King Yahweh of Israel had decreed to their ancestor Abraham, he had decreed in Genesis 22, 17, a promise of life for Abraham's numerous descendants. God had said to Abraham that one day his offspring would grow as numerous as the stars of the sky and as as the sands of the seashore. And Yahweh of Israel had also promised in Genesis 15-14 freedom and liberty one day from the clutches of Egypt. So then the pregnant Joshebed and her husband Amram had knowledge of these two rather opposite decrees. A decree of death from Pharaoh, but a decree of life from Yahweh. The question was, which voice, uh, which king would rule the day? Well, as the second chapter of Exodus opens, we go from the universal to the particular. In other words, where in Exodus chapter 1 we had a sort of wide-angle focus, 
of the whole nation of Hebrew people living there in Egypt. Now at chapter 2, the focus narrows to just a single Hebrew family living there in Egypt. And ultimately, the focus will narrow even further to a specific son within this family. And we'll, we'll also notice as we travel through chapter 2, ladies, we'll notice that women play the starring role in the deliverance of the specific male son. So ladies, it's your day today. Women play a key role in Exodus chapter 2. Now at the end of Exodus 1, Pharaoh's decree had exempted Hebrew daughters from the death waters of the river Nile. Now, somewhat ironically, I think, it's daughters, it's women who will work to thwart Pharaoh and save Moses' life. Amen. I'm with you. (laughs) So let's look at the first verse of Exodus 2 then. This verse is both vague and it is specific at the same time. Vague and specific at the same time. It reads... Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The verse is vague because it introduces two generic-sounding people, right? A man and his wife, who in this verse are unnamed. Now again, we know from reading other parts of the scripture that the names of the man and his wife are Amram and Joshebed, But here in Exodus 2.1, they're just generic. They are a man and his wife. Now, it's interesting to note that the same pattern of unnamed, generic-sounding individuals continues in this passage for eight more verses. Several other people will be introduced into the story here. Moses' sister, Pharaoh's daughter, her attendants, and a slave girl, but none of them receives a specific name. Why? Well, because the whole focus of these initial ten verses is tending toward verse 10, where finally we get a character who is named, and that's Moses. Moses, then, is really the centerpiece of the passage. We might even say that the other characters here simply serve to sort of assist or ensure the safe arrival of Moses. Moses is central to the passage. Well, we said that verse 1 is also specific. Well, how is it specific? We notice that it names the specific tribal lineage, doesn't it, of both Moses' parents. Amram and Joshebed, we notice in this verse, are both from the tribe of Levi. They are Levites, meaning that any offspring produced by this couple will be fully Levite. Now this is important because priests in Israel only came from Levite stock. Priests, who were also Levites, did what? They mediated between God and people. Priests represented God to the people and the people to God. Moses 
who will shortly be born here to this couple is born Levite. Therefore, we should not be surprised if Moses grows up into a priestly role of one kind or another. Verse 2 reports that the woman conceived and bore a son. Now, this baby who was born, Moses, was not the firstborn in this family. He was not the firstborn. We know that from reading the wider canon of Scripture. Moses has an older sister named Miriam, who we're going to meet shortly in this very text. And Moses also has an older brother named Aaron. But Exodus 2.2 makes absolutely, notice, no mention of any elder brother or sister of Moses, again for the reason that the focus here is squarely on the birth announcement of Moses. It was Moses who was chosen, chosen for leadership, even though Moses was not the firstborn in the family. Sort of like Isaac and Jacob and David. None of them were firstborn in their families, yet it was they who were chosen specifically for leadership. Verse 2 continues with the report that when Joshebed saw that her baby boy was a, notice, fine child, she hid him three months. Notice that. When Joshebed, mother of Moses, saw that Moses was a fine child, She hid him three months. What does fine child mean here exactly? Does it mean that Joshebed observed in her infant son some sort of tangible moral potential? The baby, this infant, seemed to gravitate toward the good and away from evil. Or the baby seemed to exude some potential for good behavior. Is that what her seeing Moses as a fine child means? Or perhaps it means that Joshebed saw some physical attributes in her baby that bode well for his survival. Maybe he looked particularly healthy compared to other babies. Or maybe fine child means that Joshebed just simply had a motherly bias, as mothers can, and perceived that her baby was particularly strappingly handsome. <laughs> what does this mean? When Joshebed saw that he was a fine child, she hit him three months. Well, I'm convinced that there, though there may be partial truths and some of those things we just mentioned, I'm convinced that our best approach to understanding this part of the verse is the approach of biblical theology. What we notice in the original Hebrew of this section is that the word tov, or in English, good, is used. That word fine in the ESV version, translates from the Hebrew tov, good. Joshebed saw that her baby was tov, good, or fine. And the word tov, listen, had appeared fully 
Seven times in Genesis 1, where God saw that his created works were tov, good. God saw that the light was tov, good. God saw that the earth with all its vegetation was tov, good, etc. Joshebed in Exodus 2.2 sees that her baby is tov. Now, biblical authors do this, friends. They reuse key words and key phrases on purpose to signal things to the reader. Could it be that Joshebed seeing her baby as Tov, the same word that is used seven times in Genesis 1, could it be here that some sort of new creation moment was being signaled with the arrival of this baby. Some sort of new beginning. Could it be that Joshebed herself somehow, some way, perceived that her baby might play a key role in the creative plan of Almighty God? I want to say that as Pharaoh was busy presiding like a serpent over the deathly chaos waters of the Nile, a new beginning was now starting to take shape in this dark and seemingly impossible situation, and this new beginning would center somehow on this baby who Joshebed sees as Tov. And certainly, if Joshebed somehow perceived this new creation moment that somehow was attaching to her baby, it would explain, would it not, the fact that she hid him three months. Now, having had three children of my own, I know that by about three months, the cries of an infant just get stronger They get louder. They get more insistent, right? Infants are sinners. Amen. (laughs) This probably explains why Joshebed could no longer hide Moses after the three-month time period had elapsed. Verse 3 says, When she could hide him no longer, right? When she could hide him no longer, she took for him, now listen, she took for him a basket, note that word, made of bulrushes. See, the Word of God is a high work of unbelievable beauty and artistic sophistication. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in the basket and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now note the irony here, friends. Note the irony. Back at Exodus 1.22, Pharaoh had ordered all male babies thrown into the Nile to drown and die. Joshebed does cast her male baby into the Nile, so to speak. As Pharaoh had ordered, but certainly not for the purposes 
of letting the baby die. Rather, Joshebed places her baby in the Nile to save him. With tender, motherly love and hope, Joshebed placed her baby carefully in the basket and then placed the basket in the Nile. I love how Philip Ryken describes this scene. He says, When she gently laid her baby down, she was tucking her heart inside the basket. Isn't that beautiful? Now, part of what a pastor does is sort of like what Lucy did in the Narnia story. As Lucy went into the wardrobe closet and then into the land of Narnia and came back out. During the week, pastors spend time in the strange new world of the Bible, and then like Lucy, pastors on Sunday come back through the wardrobe to the pulpit to tell their people about the glorious things they saw while they were in their study. I want to tell you about some of the glory that I have seen as I've looked closely at the original Hebrew text of Exodus 2-3. There are a couple of Hebrew words here in particular in Exodus 2-3, that were, listen, purposely, artistically, ingeniously embedded into the text by the human authors under the inspiration of Almighty God. There are two words in this verse that point us both backward in the biblical story and also forward. The first word is the Hebrew word teva which in most English translations of Exodus 2-3 is translated basket. Joshebed placed the baby Moses in a teva, in a basket. Now here's the thing, friends. Prior to Exodus 2-3, the last time this word teva was used was at Genesis 9-18, where it is usually translated as the word ark. As in Noah's ark. In fact, the word teva is used over 25 times in the Noah story. In Genesis 6 through 9, it's the word for the ark of Noah. But again, after Genesis 9.18, it's not used again until our verse. Exodus 2.3, where it normally translates as basket. And there are a host of biblical commentators who agree that we are supposed to make the connection then between the floating basket of baby Moses and the floating ark of Noah. Now watch this. Noah was set afloat on waters that were death waters to others. Moses is set afloat on waters that are death waters to others. Noah was used of God as an agent of salvation to others. Moses will be used as God's agent in the salvation of others. 
With Noah and his family surviving the ordeal of the ark, God was creating a new people. With Moses surviving his ordeal in his tiny ark, God will use him as the primary instrument in creating a new people called Israel. Noah in his ark was entirely dependent on God for protection. The ark did not have any navigational aids that were commanded by God in the instructions for the ark. He was entirely dependent on God for his protection. Moses, in his ark, in his basket, is entirely dependent on God for his protection. And notice also, the baby Moses is set afloat in his teva, which Joshebed does what with? She daubs it with tar, bitumen and pitch, just like Noah's ark had been daubed with tar. Moses will survive the death waters of the Nile so that later in life, Moses himself will play the leading human role in delivering Israel through other death waters. Namely, the death waters of the Red Sea. Now, I don't know about you, but I just want to exult here for a moment in the breathtaking wonder and beauty and profound power and artistry of the inspired biblical narrative. It is enormously awesome. I hope you know that. This word of God that you have in your hands in your native language. It is Enormously awesome. Well, the second term in verse 3, that's the first one we've gone through, the second term in verse 3 that alludes forward now in the Exodus narrative is the Hebrew word suf. Suf, which English Bibles normally translate as reeds. Joshebed placed the teva, the basket, among the suf, among the reeds. Now, from a purely practical point of view, Joshebed placed the basket among the reeds for two reasons. First of all, to ensure that little Moses wouldn't float away. He'd be kind of bumping off the reeds, but not able to float down the river. Second, in order to keep Moses concealed, she placed him amongst the reeds, amongst the thick and very tall vegetation so no one could see him. But aside from the practical, that word suf also points us forward to Exodus 13:18, where the word will be used again in the phrase, the Sea of Reeds, or the Red Sea, as it is often translated. It, what's the Red Sea? It's that place where a mighty divine deliverance would take place. Peter Enns, in his excellent commentary on Exodus, helps us notice the connection between suf or reeds in Exodus 2.3 and suf or reeds in Exodus 13.18. He says this, quote, the chi- listen to this, the child once abandoned in the reeds along the shore of the Nile will later lead his people in triumph through the reed sea. Amen. Moses' redemption as an infant will be replayed later with respect to Israel at the very infancy of her existence as a nation. Again, friends, the the Bible, we need to understand, is a dazzling, inspired work of sophisticated art 
we, we really should be pausing over the beauty of the narrative. Now, the sister of Moses, who is introduced in verse 4, goes unnamed. His sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Again, from reading the wider canon of Scripture, we know that this sister was Miriam, probably here about autumn's age, about 12 years old or so, we think. Young Miriam, at about age 12, notice she stands at a distance here. Why? In order to sort of play it cool. In order not to arouse any suspicions that the baby in the basket was related to her. And then in verse 5, we have another character introduced, the daughter of Pharaoh. A Gentile woman, and a Gentile woman who will play a leading role in the deliverance of Hebrew baby Moses. Now, the irony of the situation should not escape us. Pharaoh, of course, was bent on destroying every male Hebrew baby, right? But Pharaoh's own daughter apparently did not subscribe to her father's policy. Pharaoh's daughter will save this Hebrew baby's life. John Currid, who wrote a great commentary on Exodus, says this. One of Pharaoh's own children, listen, delivers a Hebrew child who would later save God's children from bondage to Pharaoh. (laughs) Can you see the irony? Pharaoh's daughter delivers Moses out of the Nile, and later Moses will deliver Israel from Pharaoh through the sea. That first sentence of verse 5 reads, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. Now being the daughter of the most powerful man in the world, Certainly, the daughter of Pharaoh had access to an indoor bathtub, didn't she? So why did she bathe in the Nile River? The answer is that for ancient Egyptians, the Nile was a sacred river. It was believed to have magical powers. The Egyptians believed that the river had emanated from the Egyptian god Osiris, So she's there to get the medicinal, magical properties from the river. Now, it could be that Joshua had seen Pharaoh's daughter bathe here before. Maybe Joshua placed Moses in his basket at this particular place in the river, actually hoping that Pharaoh's daughter would discover the baby. Let's watch what happens here. Pharaoh's daughter sees the little ark in the reeds, according to verse 5. She sends her servant woman to fetch it. And then verse 6 has Pharaoh's daughter opening the basket. Notice all the action here. Opening the basket, seeing the child inside, hearing the child cry. I won't do the cry again, don't worry. (laughs) Taking pity on the child and then exclaiming, this is one of the Hebrews' children. In Exodus 2, God hears the cries of his people, has pity on them, and works to deliver them. Pharaoh's daughter looks like God here. Same actions. 
Now we wonder how it was that she was able so quickly to identify the baby as one of the Hebrews' children. Did she simply appraise the situation in general terms? Here was this baby hidden in a basket on the very river where other infants had been forced to drown. Surely only a Hebrew parent would try to save a child in this way. Must be a Hebrew baby. Or, we wonder, did she take a quick peek and note that this baby was circumcised? Only Hebrews circumcised their boys. This must be a Hebrew baby. We wonder. Whatever the case, notice that the word Hebrew in verse 6 connects to the word Hebrew in verse 7. Now Miriam came over, speaking, I think, well, maybe in in the Egyptian tongue, maybe in the Hebrew language, we're not sure which. Miriam said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call, now listen to what she says here, shall I go and call, uh, little 12-year-old Miriam, so tactful and smart and wise here, shall I go and call for you, in the Hebrew, a nursing Hebrew woman, so that she will nurse the child for you. In the Hebrew, there is a repetition of the phrase, for you, here. (laughs) Young, tactful, adolescent Miriam tries to emphasize the personal interest of Pharaoh's daughter. Hey, Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call for you? She probably didn't say it like that, but shall I go and call for you, a nursing Hebrew woman, so that she will nurse the child for you? We have to notice the prudent smarts of Miriam here. Now, everyone knew in this situation that there'd be no shortage of nursing Hebrew mothers who had already lost sons in the Nile. There would be several bereaved nursing moms who would be available to nurse other Hebrew babies that were still alive. Verse 8 reports the yes answer of Pharaoh's daughter. Go seek out a wet nurse. And so what did Miriam do? (laughs) She went and she sought not just any generic Hebrew wet nurse, but she went straight to Moses' mother, Joshebeth. Isn't this a great story? Verse 9, Pharaoh's daughter says now to Joshebeth, listen to this, take this child away. And nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. Now we need to pause here for a minute and just absorb what I think are three important things about this statement that's made by Pharaoh's daughter. First, notice the compassion in it. In the prequel to Exodus, in Genesis... We learned in Genesis 43:32 that to Egyptians it was detestable or abominable to even eat with Hebrew people. Egyptians did not enjoy the company of Hebrews. Certainly it would be natural then for an Egyptian of such high rank as Pharaoh's daughter to act with contempt, right? Toward this lowly, enslaved Hebrew woman. We would expect Pharaoh's daughter to act antagonistically in this situation to these desperate Hebrew people. Yet instead, what this Gentile woman did 
where she matched up an endangered Hebrew infant with a Hebrew woman. And not only that, she offered to pay wages for the task of nursing the child. So Pharaoh's daughter appears here as quite a compassionate woman, used of God in a compassionate way. Secondly, notice here that there is a great irony in this statement that's made by Pharaoh's daughter, a great irony. The irony is, as commentator James Bruckner puts it, namely, that in God's providential arrangement, listen to this, Joshebed would actually be paid to nurse her own son by the one who had ordered his death. Did you catch that? Let me read it again. Now, at this point in the story, Joshebed would actually be paid to nurse her own son by the one who had ordered his death. <laughs> God, amen, is behind the scenes here working all of this out. You believe he can still do that? As a mom, Joshebed wanted nothing more. Say amen, moms. Nothing more than to cradle her own son and nurture him and nurse him. Not only would that now come to pass, she would also be paid to do it by the very administration that was seeking Moses' death. Terence Fretheim, just so we can get this, Terence Fretheim says, the mother gets paid to do what she most wants to do and from Pharaoh's own budget. <laughs> the irony drips from the story. God is doing amazing things already. But then the third thing we need to note in the statement of Pharaoh's daughter, oh, this is glorious, is that it points forward here. It points forward to a greater development that's going to happen later in the story. Here, at, in Exodus 2, the Hebrew Joshebed will be paid from Egypt's coffers. In Exodus 3, verse 22, the prophetic word of God says that the Hebrew people will end up doing what? Plundering the Egyptians of their wealth. And then over in Exodus 12, verses 35 and 36, we get the report of Israel leaving Egypt, and it's the Egyptians at that point in the story who grant their wealth to Israel as Israel leaves. So as the Egyptian daughter of Pharaoh gave wealth to the Hebrew Joshebed to nurse her own baby, so Egypt will later confer her treasures to the masses of Hebrew people who leave the land of Egypt. Exodus 2.9 then is like a foreshadow in the narrative. It's a foreshadow of Exodus 12.36. It's a good way to look at it. Let's go to our final verse this morning, verse 10. When the child grew older, so perhaps when Moses was weaned in this culture at about age three or so, he's now a toddler, Joshua brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, and Moses became her son. Now notice that in the providence of God, the earliest years of Moses' life had been spent in his native Hebrew environment. Amen? But now he's moved under the roof of Pharaoh's daughter into an Egyptian environment. Again, notice the irony. <laughs> Later in his life, Moses will be instrumental in the defeat of Pharaoh 
Yet his early childhood is spent as a fully funded trainee in the house of Pharaoh. God works incredible things, does he not? I hope we're seeing that. That's part of the point this morning, to see how wonderful and awesome our God is often behind the scenes, working things out, even when he is not specifically mentioned anywhere in this text. He's working all this out. The end of verse 10 tells us that Pharaoh's daughter named the child, notice this, named the child Moses. Now, friends, here, look at verse 10 with me in your Bible. I hope you have it open. Here we have the very first instance of the name Moses in the entire Bible. Exodus 2.10 is the first use of 845 uses of the word Moses in the Bible. Moses is one of the towering figures in Scripture. And again, in our passage today, he is the only character we've noticed who receives a proper name in the text, demonstrating that he is the real focus here. Now notice that the text tells us why Pharaoh's daughter chose the name Moses. Notice this. Work with me here. This is, this is interesting. We have to understand that the practice of naming children in the ancient Near East was very different than our practice of naming in contemporary Western culture. We normally choose names for babies before they're born. In our case, we chose all three names for our kids before they were even born. But in this ancient culture, names were normally given after birth. And oftentimes, names would come about by perhaps hearing something that somebody said close to the time of the birth that caught the parents' attention. Or a name would arise because of some specific circumstance or fortuity that happened near the time of the birth. Well, here in Exodus 2.10, Pharaoh's daughter, notice, chooses Moses for the child. Why? Because of what had happened when she first met Moses when he was three months old. She chose the name Moses, she says, because I drew him out of the water. Now watch this. little Hebrew here. Hang with me. The Hebrew verb, which translates into English as draw out, is mashah. Pharaoh's daughter reports that she mashad, or drew out, the baby from the Nile. She says, I drew him out. But the name Moses actually translates not as something like the one who was drawn out by his mother, But rather, Moshe, or Moses, translates in the active sense. One who draws out. You follow me? Moses himself is one who draws out. That's what his name means. There's some wordplay here in the text. In other words, the name Moses, one who draws out, is really a portent, a predictor of what Moses is going to end up doing. His name is his destiny. Moses is one who draws out, one who will draw out his fellow Hebrews from the chaos waters 
of the Red Sea. Another great commentator on Exodus, Goran Larson, has put it very memorably when he writes this. He says, the one who has been delivered out of the water will himself become the deliverer from the dangers of the water. One more time. The one who has been delivered out of the water will himself become the deliverer from the dangers of the water. Wow. Well, we've come to the close of our venture through the first ten verses of chapter 2. I want to ask you, when God saw his people suffering at the hands of Egypt, when God heard the groans and the cries of his people who were afflicted under the cruel taskmasters of Egypt, did God send in warships and bombers and military equipment Or did God mount some sort of great political strategy to free his people? No. Watch what God did instead as he centered his plans on a tiny, vulnerable, dependent, crying baby. Lying there helpless in the reeds. A feeble baby was God's answer, God's plan, to overthrow the cruel tyranny of the most powerful nation on earth. And not only a baby, but a baby who was born under a death sentence. What are the chances? Only God. Amen? Only God can pull this sort of thing off. But the amazing thing is, did you notice this morning, God was never mentioned once in any of the ten verses that we looked at. The story told us about three or four women who worked to save Moses. If God was at work here, surely he was hidden behind the human actions. (laughs) Indeed. The prequel Genesis had told us, had it not, about times when for all appearances, listen, this applies to your life, times when for all appearances God appears to be absent, even though he is still quietly, unassumingly, very much at work. Like in the very human drama, almost from top to bottom, of Joseph and his brothers. So even though God is not apparent on the surface of these first ten verses of Exodus 2, there can be little doubt that he was still there guiding every single human action. Are you with me? Quietly, God worked the impossible deliverance of the infant Moses who later is going to become the mighty deliverer of Israel. And a little more than 1,500 years after the birth of Moses, God did it again. But this time he did it in escalated fashion. As Moses had been born under a death sentence, as Moses had been born into that very hostile Egyptian environment, So Jesus of Nazareth was born under a death sentence. 
Jesus was born under the shadow of a hostile ruler named Herod. Herod, like the Pharaoh before him, also desired, listen, straight from Matthew, to kill all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. Herod, like Pharaoh before him, engaged in infanticide in order to maintain power. And Herod, like the Pharaoh before him, sought to enlist in his savage plan help. Herod sought cooperation from the Magi. Just as Pharaoh had desired help from two Hebrew midwives. In both cases, the rulers, Herod and Pharaoh, were duped by the very people they tried to employ. Amen? God spared Moses in a breathtaking way, and God spared his son, Jesus Christ, in a breathtaking way. The baby Moses grew up to become the one to deliver Israel through the waters of the Red Sea and save his people from their bondage to Egypt. Moses brought his people away from Pharaoh and away from the sins that had been committed against them in Egypt. But after Moses had released Israel from the clutches of Egypt, the people of Israel, listen, the people of Israel themselves still remained enslaved to sin. What Israel needed... Indeed, what the nations needed was a true fine child. Amen? Some truly new creation child who would come along to deliver sin-sick souls like you and I from our captivity. Jesus Christ was born. Jesus is that fine child. He is that Savior. And here's where it escalates in Hebrews 3, first six verses, it tells us of the superiority of Jesus Christ to Moses. Jesus is not some flunky Old Testament prophet, to quote my esteemed Old Testament professor back at Taylor Seminary. He is superior to Moses. The baby Jesus grew up to become not the savior of just a single nation, like Moses had been, but rather Jesus is the Savior of the world. Amen? And the bondage that Jesus Christ came to address was not bondage to any single nation, not to any single political leader like Pharaoh. Rather, Jesus came to deliver us from a far greater bondage, the universal bondage of sin, death, and the devil. Jesus Christ is a far greater deliverer than Moses ever was. Now this morning we ventured through the first section of Exodus 2, which describes a birth under dire circumstances. We've just touched on Matthew 2, which describes a very similar birth under dire circumstances, the birth of Jesus Christ. As we close now, I want to take you last to a third passage from the New Testament where a birth under dire circumstances is again described in Revelation 12, part of which was read earlier in our service. Revelation 12, a birth happens. 
And it happens under hopelessly threatening circumstances. James Hamilton of Southern Seminary describes the scene of Revelation 12 very well when he says this. A pregnant woman, this is the scene of Revelation 12, a pregnant woman is in the process of giving birth and she is threatened by a massive dragon who wants to eat her baby the moment he is born. She cannot run. She cannot hide. What hope does she have? Revelation 12.9 tells us explicitly that the dragon is none other than Satan. And a close reading of Revelation 12.5 reveals to us that the baby who is being born in the scene is none other than the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Revelation 12, then, is another angle, listen, it's another angle on the Christmas story. It describes what was happening cosmically when Jesus Christ was born. The baby is born, and in Revelation 12, 5, he is whisked up to heaven to escape the termination that the dragon had planned. And the Messiah Jesus being whisked up to heaven in Revelation 12.5 is probably shorthand for the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ after his crucifixion. Note what happens down at Revelation 12.17. Since the dragon was unsuccessful against the Messiah child, where does he turn his attention He turns his attention, listen friends, it's you and I, to those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That is, the dragon could not devour Jesus. So now his rage is turned against the church of Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes today, the church appears in our culture just as weak and fragile as a little baby lying in the reeds. Sometimes the church may even wonder if God is on the scene, if God has abandoned his people. Sometimes the pharaohs and the herods can seem so strong it can feel like the dragon huffing at the door of the church is winning. It's going to overtake the church. Well, in such times, and then I'm done, the church needs to recall Exodus 2. The church needs to recall Matthew 2, Revelation 12. The church will have to recall that the new and greater Moses, Jesus Christ, has overcome the dragon, amen, by his cross and by his resurrection. The dragon is securely defeated and doomed. Jesus escaped the dragon's jaws at birth, and he escaped the dragon's jaws at death when he was raised three days later. And Jesus promised his church, did he not, listen to the promise, that the dragon's gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Matthew 16, 18. God is never absent. God is always working stuff out, even though it be a quiet sort of way like Exodus 1 and 2. In every season, may the church trust in God 
who delivered both baby Moses and baby Jesus despite impossible odds. We'll move directly now to our time of silent meditation. Father, we praise you and thank you for the mighty conqueror, deliverer, king, master, friend, Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he walks with us and talks with us day by day. Thank you that he is out for our good, that all things work together for good when we are in Christ. Thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel. Thank you that you have revealed not only our personal history, but human history in your word, the Bible. May we cling to this word this week as we go forward. May we have great hope in Jesus and in his gospel. Amen. Here's your benediction. People of God and the Lamb, go into all the world. Go forth with forgiveness and grace. Go forth with compassion and love. And go in the strength he provides in Jesus' name.